My text today is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. As we begin our discussion of this particular commandment of God, let me begin by reading for you from the larger catechism what we find there concerning the duties contained in this commandment. This question 144 in the larger catechism. What are the duties required in the ninth commandment? The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. Appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. A charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring and rejoicing in their good name. Sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces. Defending their innocency. A ready receiving of a good report and unwillingness to admit of an evil report. Concerning them. Discouraging Tailbearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. The exposition there we find in the larger catechism of the ninth commandment. We will seek to, from the scriptures and from the catechism, to elaborate our duty, our responsibility in regard to this, the ninth commandment. Dear ones, we live in an age in which truth has been sacrificed on the satanic altar of false gods like relativism. What's right for you may not be right for me. Or the altar of pragmatism that the ends justify the means. The altar of materialism. I'm not going to believe unless I see for myself, unless I can test it in a laboratory and prove it, I won't believe. Or upon the altar of toleration and pluralism, which basically says that, that there really is no truth. That whatever one believes, we must respect and admit 
and accept what they believe, which actually leads to skepticism that we really can't know the truth. Institutions throughout the world face major upheaval and teeter on the brink of destruction because of violation of the ninth commandment, because of deception, lying, broken promises, compromise and expediency. Why the breakdown in our political institutions? We could probably assign many causes, but a major cause is that there is little or no truth spoken or defended by these elected officials. The big question for politicians today is, how can I get reelected? Why the collapse of commerce and business? A significant cause is because truth has become a ghost, as it were, between those who do business one with the other. Do something unethical? Of course, if it means making a buck or winning one over on my competitor. Why the disintegration of the family? To a large extent, truth has been sacrificed for convenience. Talk to many people who are considering a divorce about the binding nature of their marriage vows and be ready for a host of excuses and rationalizations why it is not convenient for them to keep their covenant vows. Like, I don't love him anymore. She gained too much weight and is not attractive to me any longer. He's just so insensitive. We have nothing in common. Well, I was young and didn't know what I was doing when I got married. And the manufactured list goes on and on and on. And why the feebled powerlessness of churches throughout the world today? Because they are much more concerned with the size of their congregation the funding for their building programs, and in entertaining and keeping people happy by tickling their ears with what they want to hear and what will keep them coming back, rather than in declaring the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Dear ones, there is nothing more important than believing clinging to and loving the truth. Even love itself is not possible without the truth. For what is love? According to 1 Corinthians 13.6, love rejoices in the truth. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. That is, obey the truth. Beloved, Love without truth cannot be trusted. It is deceptive, spineless, and cowardly. Love without the truth. Can you really trust a liar, a deceiver, or an hypocrite who says he loves you? 
Absolutely not. One who genuinely loves you, tells you the truth, and even tells you the truth many times at the expense of bringing a little pain. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. However, our sinful tendency so often, beloved, is to minimize the effect our lying and deceiving has on others. And yes, we're all guilty of lying and deceiving in various ways. And so let me paint for you very quickly a picture of a world where truth is not spoken, where there is no truth. Without truth, dear ones, as I've already said, trust is impossible. Many times what is at the basis of a marriage that is failing is a lack of trust. And there is a lack of trust because two partners, a husband and a wife, do not believe the other. They are not speaking the truth one to another. And so, therefore, they are not trustworthy. And the marriage, therefore, falls apart. Dear ones, if no one spoke the truth in this world where there is no truth, if no one spoke the truth, every man would be your worst enemy because you would not be able to trust them. This is why, again, in business and in various relationships, things fall apart the way they do. Distrust and suspicion would reign in such a world. I strongly urge parents in the discipline of your children. One of the things that I believe that we ought to account as a felony in our homes and You might categorize certain sins as felonies and misdemeanors. A felony in our home is lying. There is nothing that will receive more quickly the swift discipline of the father and the mother than to lie, to not tell the truth, because then you have no basis to trust your children. If they lie, instill within your children, they must tell the truth at all costs. Let them see that you yourself will not lie in your various relationships. Set the example and the pattern before them. Let them know they can count on you always to give them the truth. In such a world where... There is no truth. Think about it. There would be no libraries for you couldn't trust any of the books that would be in that library to give you the truth. There would be no uh, education because you could not trust again anyone who preceded you that they were actually telling the truth. No marriages because you could not enter into that covenant with someone you could not trust. No commerce, no business, no governments, no churches, no possible cooperation between two people in any endeavor 
great or small, if there was no truth. Every single person would be an insulated island unto himself. Because every single person would have to reinvent the wheel all over again. Because he could not trust anything that anyone else had told him. He would have to learn everything by his own intuition and his own experience. If God in his justice allowed man to sink to the depth of his own inherent depravity in lying, deceiving, and breaking promise, as he would naturally do apart from God's common grace, man would literally destroy himself from the face of this earth. As we consider this particular commandment, the first major point I want to elaborate on is the origin of truth. The most obvious application of how truth and trust are inseparably united is made clear as you consider the following questions. Why is God himself worthy of your absolute faith and confidence? Why can you stake your life on what God declares? Because he is truth. He cannot lie, nor can he break any of his promises. Let God be true, though every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. And by the same argument, why would you be an absolute fool to believe anything that Satan says? Because he's a liar. In fact, Jesus calls him the father of lies. We tend to minimize as well not only the effect our falsehood has on others, but as well the seriousness and gravity of this sin in the sight of the Lord God. We rationalize it's simply a minor distortion of the truth. It's not a matter of life and death. And furthermore, who will ever really know? Who's going to find out? But listen, dear ones. Listen to the the truth even now. Untruth, falsehood, lying, slandering, flattering, gossiping, the receiving and caring of an evil report about a brother or a sister, the breach of lawful promises, all these are sins and are said to be an abomination to God Himself. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, we find these words from the Lord God. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yes, or yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet 
that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. These are abominations to the Lord God. In fact, we find in Revelation chapter 21, a most sobering truth. 21, uh, the 21st chapter of Revelation, verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be as God and he shall be my son. Verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. One of those categories of sins which send people to hell, God defines as liars, those who do not speak the truth. Those who do not love the truth, but rather love error. <clears throat> Dear ones, God is the very antithesis. He is the origin of truth. He is the very antithesis to falsehood. He himself is truth. For again, we find in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? This is the God that we serve. Children, he is a God of truth. You are to follow the example of the Lord God himself, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is truth. There is no trace of untruthfulness in God at all. He abhors all lying. His righteousness and justice are grievously offended by all dishonesty. He hates, God hates, the the scales that are not just. God hates dishonesty in business. God's wrath burns against all those who strike out against Him and His truth. All truth that we have, dear ones, we have because God has given to us that truth. Not because truth originates with us, but because it is derived from the living God. All truth is original to God, but God does in His rich mercy and boundless grace give to us His truth. And again, Thy Word is truth. We ought to bless the living God that we have this truth every single day. That He has given to us the Spirit of truth to lead us and guide us into His truth. You see, truth was never developed 
by trial and error with God. God never made any mistakes as to the nature of truth. God never learned a new truth, ever. He has forever known all things actual and all things possible. The Scripture declares in Psalm 147.5, His understanding is infinite. And in Psalm 146.6, He keeps truth forever. You see, dear ones, God is not fickled. God doesn't go back and forth with regard to His Word, with regard to the truth. It is forever settled in the heavens. He's not capricious. He's not arbitrary. He makes no mistakes nor errors. He is not shifting sand, but rather, because He is the God of truth, He is an impregnable rock upon which you can build your lives. You can count on the fact that God will give you the truth because He is truth. And because God is truth, all that He says is true. In Psalm 119, 151, David says, All thy commandments are truth. And the Lord Jesus staked His whole ministry upon the truthfulness of His own Word when He said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My Word shall not pass away. What a comfort. What an encouragement to God's people when we hear so many philosophies and so many different competing ideas to know that we have the truth in the living God and in His Word. But if we proclaim, dear ones, to belong to God, if we confess the Lord Jesus Christ, then our lives must evidence this grace of truth within them. With David, we must pray, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. I ask you, beloved, do you crave? Do you crave for God's truth? Do you hunger and thirst to be truthful like God? Is there a family resemblance of truthfulness in your inward man and in your speech? These, beloved, are not inconsequential matters at all. God could not make it more clear than He does in 1 John 1.6. If we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. One of the most prominent graces in the life of every true believer is a love for the truth and a hungering and thirsting to be truthful like God Himself. The second main point is the antithesis of truth. The antithesis of truth. 
the antithesis, or that which is directly opposite to God, who is truth, is Satan, who is the father of lies. The Bible teaches, dear ones, lying is satanic. It is satanic. It is devilish. It is demonic. From the very beginning, it was Satan who questioned the very veracity of God by saying, Hath God said? You remember the apostle Peter rebuked Ananias in Acts chapter 5 with these words, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? The same thing may be said about us when we in any way bear false witness against our neighbor Why hath Satan filled our hearts to lie against the Holy Ghost, against God? Because all lying, dear ones, is inevitably not against our neighbor. But because God is truth, all lying is committed against Him, the God of truth. God's just penalty fell on Ananias for his untruthfulness in Acts chapter 5. What monstrous lie did Ananias tell for God to slay him right on the spot? He said he was giving all the proceeds of the sale of his property to the Lord when in fact he was withholding a part of it for himself. And most people would say, well, that's not a very big lie at all. It was his money to do with as he pleased. He didn't hurt anyone else. Neither was simply eating a piece of fruit from a forbidden tree such a heinous sight in the eyes of most people. And yet that sin cast all mankind into sin, misery, and death. And be careful to note, dear ones, that, that Sapphira... Sapphira, his wife, received the same penalty as Ananias. Why? Because she was aware of the lie which Ananias had told and supported it. She was an accomplice as well and did not set the matter straight when she had an opportunity to do so. Ananias spoke when he should have been silent. Sapphira was silent when she should have spoken. Someone may say, well, God sure must, surely must have changed his opinion about lying because he does not strike people down on the spot when lies are, are given nowadays. Don't be deceived, dear ones, by such perverted thinking. God has not changed his mind or his opinion with regard to speaking the truth. If God does delay his judgment and his punishment against sin, his long-suffering, his patience is meant to lead us to repentance and not 
to lead us to believe that he condones our sin. Romans 2.4 says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Why is God so patient with us? Is it because he approves of our sin? No. He is patient because he is giving us the opportunity, the time to repent of our sin before his fatherly discipline falls upon us for our sin. The third main point. What truth reveals about us? What truth reveals about us? Dear ones, our words are a window to our heart. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. That which fills the heart overflows to the tongue. Our words reveal the condition of our own heart. And that is why the Lord Jesus, as as God's own judge on that final day, has indicated that he will judge and try every man, even on the basis of the words which they have spoken. Again, in Matthew chapter 12, very, very sobering words that come from the Lord God. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. My speech, your speech, dear ones, reveals the inner operations of the Holy Spirit of God within your life and mine. Let us, therefore, fervently pray with David again, as he prayed in Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Someone has said, I think rightfully so, if you would not willingly write your words down on paper and sign it, then don't carelessly express them. There is, in fact, a world, beloved, there is a world where truth is unknown and where falsehood does, in fact, reign supreme. The ruler of that world is he of whom it is said by Jesus, he was a liar from the beginning and is the father of lies. There in the lake of fire, all liars will have their part. In hell, to deceive and to be deceived is the universal rule. And distrust sits brooding over every heart in hell. 
and appears upon the face and scowls in every look of those who are in hell. In hell, absolute loneliness is the eternal curse myriads must bear, for there is no end to deception in hell. There is no end to lies in hell. No end to evil reports in hell. No end to broken promises in hell. No end to slander and backbiting or profane, obscene and corrupt speech. For in hell there is no truth. There is no truth believed or practiced. None at all. What an absolutely sobering truth about the desperately wicked condition of our own hearts, dear ones. Liars will writhe in anguish from the torment of hell and yet will with an unrepentant heart forever continue to do that which sent them to hell in the first place. They will continue to promote untruth. They'll continue to promote slander and lies. They not only are paying for what they have committed here, but they continue to do the same thing forever and ever in hell. You see, the picture of hell, I believe, is not a picture or a place where multitudes are pleading with God for a second chance. But I believe in hell there is complete obstinacy, unrepentance, hardness of heart in hell, a forsaking absolutely of the truth, no desire to know the truth. And you see, dear ones, in our heart of hearts, in our unregenerate heart of hearts, our natural disposition is that we do not desire to know the truth. The fact that you are here today, that you desire to know the truth, is an amazing evidence of God's grace in your life. God has set you free by His truth. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. God not only calls us to understand that we are under oath to tell the truth. When we are in a court of law, a legitimate court of law, but we are never to bear false witness in any situation because in God we live and move and have our being because He fills heaven and earth. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding both the good and the evil so that we are always, dear ones, we are always on God's witness stand. We are not to bear false witness. We are always under oath to tell the truth. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. In every lie, in every misrepresentation of the truth, in every slanderous remark, in every foul joke, in every broken promise, 
in every juicy piece of gossip received and spread to others. In each case where we do not defend the truth, we perjure ourselves before God and bear false witness. Now, this has been a very, very strong and heavy sermon. I move now to my last point, that of application. First point of application is this. The word devil means accuser. Slander. For he is the accuser of the brethren. He has no greater delight than when he can fill the heart of one who is in Christ, one who is a brother or sister within a church, to spread a slanderous report about another brother in the church. For then, has one in the church slandering a brother just like that one has slandered a brother just like Satan himself slanders brethren before God. He has participated in a satanic and demonic act, slandering, accusing a brother. And nothing, dear ones, will more quickly quench the Spirit of God than such gossip in our lives. And you and myself become accomplices in this sin. If we receive that gossip, for if everyone closed their ear to gossip and backbiting and backstabbing in the church, who would there be to listen to it? The gossiper would shamefully have to swallow his own poisonous words until he was made sick of those very poisonous words and vomited them forth once and for all. Rather, the scripture tells us how to deal with problems within the church in Matthew 18 by going to the brother, keeping it as narrow as possible, not spreading gossip one to another. And only after that brother has refused to listen, then to go and bring witnesses. And at each step, until it comes to the elders of the church, when that brother does not listen, then it goes to the next step. But the purpose, Lord, uh, dear ones, according to the Lord's own will, is not to injure, to hurt, to harm. It is to love, to edify that brother in the truth. The second application. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32... Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Confession of the truth. 
Silence, dear ones, is not always golden. Sometimes it is yellow, a cowardly yellow. We have many examples that we can grow by and be encouraged by in the Word of God. Noah, when all of the whole world at that time had turned against him, Noah was a preacher of righteousness and stood against all for the sake of the truth. Do we think that we are a minority? What about Noah? The preacher, not one among several preachers of righteousness, but the preacher of righteousness that lived at that time. I'm reminded as well of the prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings chapter 22, who before King Ahab would not even bow the knee and distort the truth, but who spoke the truth even to his own injury, even to his own harm, he spoke the truth. According to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. In contrast to the church that he's writing to, the church of Laodicea, which was lukewarm in its witness. It was lukewarm, indifferent to the truth. It didn't care about the truth about maintaining the truth. It was simply there. But defending it, proclaiming it, loving it? No, lukewarmness. Jesus says, I would have you either hot or cold. But this indifferency, this spirit of indifference has to go. But Jesus, the faithful and true witness for the truth, He was willing to suffer as well. He was willing to die the anguishing death upon the cross for the sake of the truth. To bear all of God's holy wrath for the sake of the truth. He is our example, dear ones. The word witness is actually the same word for martyr in the Greek language, martus. Witness, martyr. Why the connection? Because when we speak the truth, we must be willing to die for it. Otherwise, we are not faithful and true witnesses like the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be willing to die for the truth. And interestingly enough, in Deuteronomy chapter 19... A witness who appeared upon the witness stand realized that if he became a false witness, he would perish and die in a capital offense. If he became a false witness in a capital offense, he himself would suffer the punishment that he had been accomplished in bringing against 
this other person. When truth is at stake, it's worth dying for. And if error is what is being promoted, God teaches us that will be punished as well. He who confesses me before men will I confess before my Father in heaven. He who denies me will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. The third application is this, that this particular commandment calls us to understand the binding nature of biblical and lawful covenants upon our posterity. The covenants of our covenanted and Presbyterian forefathers bind us to fulfill all moral obligations contained therein. For we are their children. We are their posterity. And one of the sins that the Apostle Paul says will be very rampant in the last days in 2 Timothy 3.3 is truce-breaking, covenant-breaking. Our forefathers, dear ones, contended earnestly for the truth, for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And so must we as their children. We must be witnesses as they were. They were willing to lay down their lives for the truth. And so must we. We must have that kind of conviction about the truth. And you see, dear ones, as we grow in our conviction of the truth, you know what correspondingly grows within us? Courage. When we are assured and confident that what we speak and what we proclaim is the truth, God gives us courage to stand for the truth. So that we, like the witnesses in Revelation chapter 12, who oppose the dragon, we can say as well that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their life even to death. Just two more quick points concerning application. What about deception? You've all been waiting for this particular application. What about the use of deception? For example, in the case of war, the case of saving lives, what about the use of deception? Well, I'm not going to go into a long, elaborate explanation or defense this Lord's Day, but I believe that we ought to hear this and follow this as a general principle. The Scripture does justify concealment of the truth in cases of war to preserve the life of others. But the Scripture does not defend and justify the outright speaking of an untruth, of a lie. Concealment of truth, not giving the whole truth to someone who does not deserve it at that time. Many examples of that in the scripture. But to speak an untruth, to speak a lie, 
is contrary to the very nature of God. And the last point of application is this. Because God, dear ones, is true. Because God is truth. Because, therefore, He is trustworthy. Your assurance of salvation ultimately rests upon the veracity, upon the truthfulness of His character. Not upon the truthfulness of your character, of your actions, of your attitudes, but upon the truthfulness of God's character. And when He says, Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because He is a God of truth and He cannot lie. To put your confidence and your faith in Him alone for your eternal salvation is to enjoy that salvation, is to inherit an eternal life. You see, the only question is this, ultimately, is God trustworthy can he be trusted to save all those who trust in Jesus alone for their eternal salvation if God is trustworthy as the Bible declares you cannot help but have an infallible assurance of faith for God dear ones cannot bear false witness Let us stand in prayer. We do come to Thee this day, our God, God of truth, a God who cannot lie, a God who will not deceive us, a God upon whom we can cast all our cares. And Lord, we do cling to Thy promises this day. We do cling to our Savior. We do cling to Thy Spirit. We do cling to Thy Word. O Lord God, give to us that grace to believe Cause us, Lord, not to listen to the attack of the enemy who would declare in our ears, hath God said, or who would be more bold to say, God hath not said, but God, let us cling to Thee. For in Thee is assurance, in Thee is confidence, in Thee is enjoyment of all of Thy salvation. And Father, give to us courage as we do cling to Thy truth. Give to us, Lord, assurance of that truth. Let us, Lord, flee from skepticism. Let us flee from toleration of error and pluralism. 
let us flee from all of those sins that would mar the truthfulness of God. Lord, we do praise Thee this day that Thou hast given to us Thy Word and we do stand upon it. Father, as we look to this week ahead of us, we pray that Thou would go with us. Prepare us for battle. We do pray, Father, that Thou would be uh, as well with Murray as he travels to uh, Jasper to, uh, to work there this week and as he is separated from Kristen, that Thou would go with him. That Thou would watch over them. That Thou would be with each family in our congregation. That we, Lord, would instill within our families, within our children, love for the truth a hungering and thirsting for the truth, a willingness to die for the truth and suffer for it at whatever cost. Lord, let us buy the truth and sell it not. For we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6-L-3-T-5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.